Welcome to Practical Access. I'm Lisa Dicker. And I'm Rebecca Hines. And today we're joined by Dr. Megan Nichols. Lisa, what can you tell us about Megan? Well, Dr. Nichols uh, is not only an amazing friend and colleague, uh, she's also a University of Central Florida faculty member who has a really unique level of expertise in helping children and families to, and actually teachers with kids who are medically or chronically or critically ill. Uh, and so we are hoping, Dr. Nichols, first of all, thank you for joining us, that you can share some practical ideas for families and teachers in that topic. So thanks for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to just start with a really first question. You know, uh, I'm a teacher and I'm in the classroom and a child falls ill, whether it be for a day, a week, uh, a month. What, where, where should I start? What, what would be some practical things I should think about right away beyond, oh my gosh, I'm worried about my student. We know that teachers care deeply, but what are some academic things that I might be doing to help that child either as they're gone or when they return? Yeah, so um, that's a great question, and I appreciate getting to share my um, ideas on that, particularly the ideas that have been passed along to me from parents and the kids themselves and, you know, what they're looking for, um, especially during those early days and, the you know, when, when a child might be first diagnosed. And I think the one thing that I want to make sure to stress is don't hesitate or be afraid of that academic piece at all. Because like you mentioned, Lisa, um, you know, teachers are so deeply caring and, you know, just sort of the, the inclination is to say, you know what, just, just take care of yourself and be well. And of course, that is, you know, um, a very welcomed message. But what I hear all the time from the children themselves and from their parents is, school provides that normalcy piece, right? So having that that known and that sort of routine uh, work, you know, so to speak, to do for school, it isn't something that teachers need to shy away from for, for a child with a, either a new or an existing chronic or critical illness. So, so don't be afraid to continue to engage them in, you know, creative and, and complex work. So Having said that, um, you know, I some some really practical things that are easy, I think, for teachers to or or parents if they're looking for some resources, you know, if their situation is, is home based or or whatnot, is to find things that are sort of open ended tasks for the kids to do that don't rely too much on any one device or um, like a paper pencil task. So, you know, I think in teaching, we talk a lot about not being heavy on worksheet things. And, you know, I, my, my thought on that sort of is, is it's never about whether it's actually a, a worksheet or not, right? We know that any teaching resource, it's the content of it that matters, not, you know, whether it's a, a piece of paper or whatnot. But um, when we're actually talking about this group of kids, kids with chronic and critical illnesses, it actually is that it's on a piece of paper that is the thing that matters, right? And so we want to, if you're a teacher and you need to be sending resources to the child's home or to the child's hospital room, you know, wherever they are, 
um, the resource itself matters and porous things like paper worksheets, things like that, we want to steer clear from. So as you're thinking about what is it that their classmates are doing that they can continue and work on, you know, maybe there's a way that things can be communicated in short little video bursts, you know, that you, you can record on your phone or um, even phone calls, you know, but just not being reliant on sort of paper heavy things or, or sending over, um, you know, what we might think of as more traditional schooling things. But then the topics themselves are easy to stay right on our classroom focus with our, you know, state and national level objectives and just expand it maybe a little bit to be more open-ended in terms of what that end result might look like for them given the amount of time they may have to work on uh, any particular activity or um, uh, assignment. So I, I should probably pause for a minute to let you ask follow-up questions on that yeah. before I just ramble kind of endlessly there. No, it's perfect. So I was actually thinking as you, you gave me a great segue there because I was, I was actually going to ask, you know, you mentioned some, some digital tools and, you know, how sometimes having, again, as you said, you know, porous things like a, uh, a, a worksheet, you know, paper, et cetera, may not be the best all the time. Um, so in, as you know, in this profession of education, there are some teachers who have long been um, hesitant about using technology or, or um, using remote learning. And certainly we've all been just thrust into the position of using remote learning. But I wondered if this type of distance learning um, might have opened some doors now for for families or teachers who are working with those kids who have these chronic and critical needs. I think so. I mean, um, you know what what you mentioned, Becky. I, I've been reflecting on, uh, you know, for the past months, you know, as just how um, unprecedented teaching is right now, you know, sort of globally uh, in the situation that we find ourselves in with the pandemic, and and how it now has made the conversation about teaching this population of kids much more accessible to everybody. We can kind of understand now more easily that hardship of, you know, just all of the sudden finding yourself um, as either the teacher or the parent being really reliant on a different set of resources, having that distance aspect and having to you know, get over that learning of like a sharp learning curve uh, in a short amount of time with probably no extra supports, you know, in there, either at the school level or the home level. So I think as far as technology resources go, just to offer some general advice there, there are lots of them. And there, you know, um, there are lots that are at no cost with at beautiful pieces of software. Um, for example, you know, mathematics is my area of focus and Desmos is a free resource that is applicable for all levels of mathematics education and can be used on a phone, a tablet, a computer. So, you know, looking for resources that have 
um, different modalities of access, you know, whether and modality probably isn't the right word there, but just as far as devices, right, that it's not Android specific or, you know, um, Mac specific, anything like that, because you don't know um, what is going to be available, either if it's something coming from, you know, a child life team at a hospital where they likely have some devices that they can get in the hands of kids or what the school might have for one-to-one um, -one devices that the children might have access to or just what's in a home. Um, some other, you know, so, so Desmos is fantastic. There are a lot of fantastic free resources that you can find through um, the FDOE, the Florida Department of Education. If you um, are perusing their website, you can get to a lot of those. Um, that colleagues have shown me that are particular for like reading language arts that are some great um, great things that can be found on there right, um, right. another and this doesn't directly address your question Becky but it just popped in my head and, and I want to be sure to mention there's actually a group for teachers a professional organization that exists for teachers teaching this population or, or you find yourself um, teaching in a classroom and, and you have a a child in your classroom who is facing a chronic or critical illness and so educational uh, group for children with medical needs and they have a really active Facebook and Pinterest account where you can um, sign up for a lot of their free resources even those that they will mail to you so they have some different workbooks and resources for both parents and teachers that they'll get in your hands for for no cost well you know what um, Megan that's why we have doc students we will have one of them find out what that magical group is so that we, so that yeah we, and I can definitely um, that see link. The link in the picture in my head but they've just recently changed their name because they merged two different existing groups under one banner so it used to be AECMN um, and then they, uh, they've merged. And so then, you know, when you need to know the name, it just flies right out of your head. So, you know, maybe you can, you know, you mentioned several of ac academic resources and we're, we're going to hunt down some of these other um, outside resources and agencies that serve kids to provide, provide information about tools but I'm wondering about those social needs of kids so if I'm in the hospital now you know not only am I missing out academically but I'm probably kind of lonely you know I'm missing I'm missing the people that I'm used to being around and I know a lot of kids are experiencing that right now in a different way you know just working from home but what types of things can you recommend to help kids stay connected with other kids yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a great way to, to merge that with what is likely um, needed, again, if I think about something like language arts, is have it, you know, set up something as simple as like a pen pal type um, activity where they can be writing to each other, whether that's, you know, digitally sending emails or actually, you know, writing um, and, and mailing things to each other and, and whatnot. But um, or even, you know, I, I, there was a time a few weeks ago or months ago, I guess, when I would have said kids would probably feel kind of awkward about Zoom, but not anymore, right? Not so they're all using Zoom and familiar with it, but 
definitely getting them connected. I think that it's so important that they have that social emotional piece, even if it's just recess time, you know, that they can feel that they're there and able to connect. If teachers can borrow, you know, even five to 10 minutes a day to, to make that happen within their classroom, that does so much for helping the, the child with the chronic or critical illness feel that they can maintain that connection to their classmates. That then translates um, into their motivation to just keep up with the work that's getting sent as well. You know, instead of feeling like they've been alienated and then, you know, uh, just the, the, the lower sense of kind of well-being that comes over can often, you know, just keep them from being motivated to, to work on the things that are sent over. So that piece is really key. You know, and Megan, uh, you know, we know your work and we adore your passion, especially for kids who have cancer and just chronic illnesses. And one of the things I think you've, you know, you've had losses in your profession of, of children and you've saw children struggle. And what's your advice yes. to teachers to talk to the rest of the students in the class? You know, we're in this really delicate time under FERPA that I can't tell you what's wrong with your classmate. And if they come back and they're, you know, they don't look the same or they don't feel the same, what, what is your advice as a teacher to show empathy and still be confidential in what that child's uh, complications might be to help the rest of the class deal with some of the complicated issues that you've seen over time? Yeah, so there's absolutely the need to educate their peers. Um, and it, it, that need goes in both directions, right? Their peers are often fearful of the kinds of things that they should say or how they should react or what that communication can look like between themselves and their, their classmate, you know, who has um, fallen ill. And there's also the need on the child that, that has the illness to have their classmates be educated. You know, it's often that we put the burden on the child or the, those parents to have to educate others. And, and that can become, you know, something that is, is difficult and um, tiresome, right, for those kids to, to have to, to do that. And so I think that that piece is really important for teachers and parents to work together to address. Because as you mentioned, Lisa, we absolutely, you know, have to be careful about, you know, some of that private health information, you know, but with, with the parent um, working alongside the teacher, I think that, um, and, and with, I, I should add, with the aid of some of those resources that are available, um, whether it's a picture book, you know, that can talk about the illness itself and what sort of typical as far as um, how it might affect the child's physical appearance or, you know, just some of their um, activities of daily life, I think helping their classmates um, have a, an, an adequate understanding and expectation of that just puts everybody more at ease so that when it comes to having those shared communication times, that is a, you know, a much um, smoother uh, venture for everybody. And I think that 
you know, the way that I've handled that in classrooms, either as myself as the classroom teacher or when I've helped, you know, families and classroom teachers come together to be able to do that, it's just being willing to have a courageous um, sort of truthful question and answer session, you know, with the kids. Um, sometimes with our really younger kids that has worked better in smaller groups, you know, um, it's just, you know, having them kind of in different like center times be able to keep their attention a little bit better and being able to have a little, uh, for lack of a better descriptor here, quiet time around the, the topic than lots of, you know, little voices with lots of questions at once, right? Um, but, but definitely letting them pose questions um, with older kids and some of the questions that they might be embarrassed or fearful to ask for whatever reason, um, like a ballot box has worked really well. Of You could submit a question and that gives um, teachers a little bit of lead time on what kinds of questions are they curious about and are they questions I'm able to um, answer or should answer, you know, given some of the um, protection laws around private health information. So um, I think that that's a, a great tool for being able to field some of that as well before you get to that shared time in which you're going to talk to the students and, um, and have them answer questions. And a, another thing I'll add on to that is I've had a few kids who I've worked with in the hospitals who, I'm going to cough again, sorry. <coughs> I've had them in talking to them about what they'd like their classmates to know, I've had them write, you know, letters. Like, I'd like my classmate to know this. And I've also had them do that um, when they are, you know, ending their treatment. So for a lot of our, our childhood cancer survivors, you know, they, they've gotten to that finish line and, and they're celebratory. And to have them kind of look back um, – in a meaningful way really, really means a lot to them to be able to, to teach others on, you know, what their experience was and how they can then best help out, um, you know, other, other children who, who unfortunately may encounter the same thing. And whether that advice is they've given it to teachers and they've given it to peers and sometimes they've given it to parents and to me. <laughs> so I think that just having them have that opportunity to say, I mean, who better can speak to what they need and what they want people to know. Yeah. And I think parents, that's a powerful tool as well. Like what do parents want teachers to know? You know, I have a lot of conversations with those parents on, on, you know, just sort of if, if their teacher, if their child's teacher understood, you know, some of the situational things, e either around hospital setting or around the homebound setting. And I know that teachers are very open to that and would love to be able to receive that kind of feedback. So just encouraging that communication, you know, teachers can reach out and encourage parents to do that. I think that um, that, it, that would be extremely well received. Well, you know, Megan, uh, you know, one of the things that you do so well is you, um, 
always keep this glass over half full attitude and optimism in all the work that you do. And I know one of the things that you're really known for in your research is this whole concept of robotics and how robots can empower kids. So I loved your whole statement of empowering the voice of the child. And can you talk for us just a, a couple minutes to summarize, and this will be my last question for you, about how you see the critical nature of STEM and robots being really included for kids with chronic medical needs 24 seven, that, that we don't, as you said, stop the clock because their health is challenged. You actually believe that we up the game and I would love to have you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and you know, if I'm being honest, I tried to be a little careful around that just because I know it's not a resource that everybody has available to them. But then again, you know, I often start either, you know, PD sessions or workshops by saying, you know, you probably have a robot in your classroom and you don't know it, you know, because kids are given um, all of these different STEM toys and gadgets, you know, at, at various different times as Christmas presents, you know, the little Star Wars one that went around that'll probably come back around now that the next movie is coming out. And, and just as far as educational robotics go, they're becoming more and more um, ubiquitous, right? And that price point keeps going down. So it's becoming, I think, more um, obtainable for lots of families and classrooms. And I'd also be happy to, you know, to, to share, you know, res- like how people can um, – find some of those resources at, at lower end cost, but I absolutely believe wholeheartedly, it's my passion, that it's not just that we give these kids, you know, the run of the mill schoolwork, but that we really challenge them and we engage them in complex work because it's, you know, um, beyond the statement of normalcy for them, it's really, um, communicating I think the idea that they are able and that their um, illness has not um, subtracted in any way from from what they're able to do and achieve but also that you know when we talk about STEM subjects we're really talking about these you know like it or not sort of these these gatekeepers but these um, the very creative, rich subject areas that can connect to a lot of student interests and that can really um, be sort of global areas that we can reach all the school content that we need to do normally and do it in a way that is hands-on, that's robust, that gets kids excited. And if you don't grab that motivational piece for this population of kids, you've lost you know, the academic battle before it's begun because you are competing not only with, you know, feeling unwell, but you're also competing with um, a lot of the really fun and amazing things that get brought into, um, you know, children's hospitals, for example, that, that aren't on the educational sense, not that anybody, you know, would dream of, of wanting to, to have those things in their life. But if we, if we think about, um, you know, storybook characters and, and theme park visitors that go to children's hospitals, you're, you're not going to compete, you know, with your traditional textbook and, um, you know, whatever school-based activities are sort of the norm there. So educational robotics, they really kind of house all of that in one. 
because you can create any kind of open-ended task. You can take the regular tasks that are in the math textbook that you're teaching from, for example, and you can say, have your robot do this, right? So if it's, if I just think of a quick example off the top of my head, and we're thinking about teaching perimeter, right? Um, so if you're going to have a, a robot, you know, walk out the perimeter and calculate the perimeter of different, you know, um, carpet tiles or vinyl tiles on the floor, wherever they are, you can address perimeter in a way that I, I guarantee will be constructed in that child's mind and stick there. So it's not that you have to, to reinvent anything or come up with um, lesson plans specific to robotics. It's just that the robot can become the vehicle that creates those open-ended tasks that I started off um, talking about. So <clears throat> Megan, as we, as we wrap up, um, you know, you, you've given us a lot of good ideas for, for teachers and things that we can do. Um, and, and we've talked a lot about kids who, who are, who have chronic illness. And, and we all know that sometimes it, it's, it's just kids who are high need um, kids with disabilities, you know, who miss a lot of school and who, who, who just can't always physically be present. So and I, and it's not something that we in teacher education spend a lot of time honestly talking to our students about. So they don't our the teachers don't necessarily know what to do. So parents may need to sometimes advocate. So what would you tell parents? What's what's your one tip to parents if their child either you know, becomes chronically ill or their child has, has high needs um, and is home a lot and cannot be in school, what would be the one, one recommendation for parents? I think the first thing is that don't, don't wait, right? Don't wait for the school to reach out. Don't wait for someone to call you about the 504, the IEP. You've got to educate yourself. And the, I think the best way to educate yourself, so this is where I guess I'd merge it with thing number two, is find a group of parents who've been there, mm -hmm. right? Or a teacher who's been through it with a, you know, with a, a prior student in their classroom because they're going to know and you need that. It's hard to get all of that information quickly, especially when you're under the stress of, of like the new diagnosis. So... Um, you know, it's, it's often the case that, that our very well-meaning teachers and, you know, administration, the schools may not have had this, um, you know, occur within their, their classroom or school before. And so they're likely not to know either. So don't be shy about reaching out and, and contacting, but get educated because parents have to drive that piece. They really, really do. And I think, um, you know, if, if I'm sort of speaking on behalf of teachers, being a teacher myself, it's appreciated when, the, you know, the parent can offer the ideas, right? Because it's often that the teacher is trying to do the same thing as far as how to, you know, um, take in a lot of information really quickly and get those answers to parents. So, be be quick to 
to communicate and to, to have your, your needs be known so that they can get met. That's a great tip. Great tip. Well, thank you. And that was, that was a perfect way to end a, a great segment. Thank you for your wisdom and your dedication to this really unique population that I think has gone unserved in many ways, uh, and especially in the area of mathematics until your work really came to the field. So thanks for all you do. And thanks for joining us. If you would like to send us any questions, you can join our Facebook at Practical Access, or you can send us a tweet at Access Practical. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Nichols, for joining us today. Thank you for having me.